Nearly 70,000 Americans have died of COVID-19 in three months. Remdesivir gets an emergency use authorization from the FDA. And another expert panel predicts we could be dealing with COVID-19 for another 18 months or more. This is America Dissected, and I'm your host, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. You've all seen that horror movie. You know, the one where the protagonist finally confronts their tormentor, they fight, and the protagonist wins. They think it's all over. And then, only after they walk away, the tormentor opens their eyes again, and then comes back with a vengeance. Well, it's been seven long weeks of social distancing. And it's worked. The rate of new cases is starting to drop. And we all saw that movie, right? We know better than to declare victory too early, right? Or maybe not. It was a lovely weekend in Michigan, one of the first where the thermometer hits the 80s and actually stays there for a while. It was the kind of weekend that would have had every park filled, people enjoying the beginning of a great Michigan summer. But of course, it's still early May, and just last week, Michigan's governor announced this. I signed an executive order this morning to extend the stay home, stay safe order through May 15th. The data shows that most Michiganders are doing their part by staying home and staying safe. It's good, but I want to be crystal clear. The overarching message today is still the same. We all need to do our part, and staying home is the best way to prevent spread of COVID-19. So I was kind of surprised as I drove through town on my way to Costco to buy groceries over the weekend to see groups of young people sunbathing outside. They didn't see the movie, I guess. Then I scroll Twitter because, well, what else is there to do? And I catch pictures of people in astoundingly large groups in Georgia, New York City's West Village, or on Huntington Beach. Come on now, people. We've got to do better. But then I guess this doesn't help. We must sacrifice together because we are all in this together and we'll come through together. It's the invisible enemy. That's always the toughest enemy, the invisible enemy. But we're going to defeat the invisible enemy. I think we're going to do it even faster than we thought. And it will be a complete victory. It'll be a total victory. States all over the country are implicitly declaring victory over COVID-19 by opening up their states. They're being egged on by folks like these. And now, because we have flattened the curve, because we have slowed the spread, with those important new guidelines, he wants to reopen America. ASASP, as soon as safely possible. That is our focus tonight. And then, of course, there are these people. Doesn't matter what crisis there is, you only have the power that you have, and you can't take more. And if people are going to die, I'm sorry, you only have as much power as you have. Just this week, quote-unquote, protesters carrying assault rifles stormed Michigan's Capitol building demanding an end to the stay-home orders. I get that you're frustrated, but an assault rifle? Never mind the fact that we could do a whole episode about gun reform and public health. And then there was the vice president, the leader of the COVID-19 task force, who decided he didn't need to wear a mask while touring the Mayo Clinic. I do have to ask you about your husband not wearing the mask when he was touring the Mayo Clinic. Why wasn't he wearing one? That's a great question. I'm glad that you asked me. Um, as our medical experts have told us, uh, wearing a mask prevents you from spreading the disease. And knowing that he doesn't have 
COVID-19, uh, he didn't wear one. It was actually after he left Mayo Clinic that he found out that they had a policy of asking everyone to wear a mask. But I guess he apologized, so it's all good? This all speaks volumes to a disturbing trend toward politicizing public health. Every health official in the country is arguing that we need to maintain social distancing until we see sustained decreases in cases and we have the testing and tracing capacity to come out of social distancing safely. But we've watched as politicians have created a false equivalency about the need to restart the economy. I understand that this is devastating the economy, but it's not social distancing that's doing it. It's COVID-19. And the answer isn't letting up early. The answer is making sure we've actually beaten COVID-19 and providing more support for everyday people in the form of basic income, as we discussed last week with Andrew Yang, more support for small businesses, like actually small businesses, rent and utility relief, and support for healthcare costs. We cannot revive our economy until we defeat COVID-19. It's that simple. People won't go back to their quote-unquote normal lives so long as a deadly, super-infectious virus is lurking about. The only way around social distancing is through it. But we have to keep society whole while we do it. Remember, that horror movie never ends well for the protagonist. In fact, a highly respected infectious disease group out of the University of Minnesota recently released a report about what they think will happen with COVID-19. They predict that we'll have one of three scenarios. Two of them have us dealing with more serious peaks for a really long time. It may be a big peak that could occur uh, sometime in late summer, early fall. It could be a whole series of peaks that just kind of overlay on each other in many different areas. And then finally, it could just be a slow burn. It just continues and continues and continues. And it looks like we're on our way already. A research group at the University of Washington has been calculating a projected total number of deaths to COVID-19. Their model is considered the gold standard, and it takes into account how social distancing and other factors are impacting the COVID-19 death rate. Their last update to the model on April 29th projected the total number of COVID-19 deaths in the United States to be a bit over 72,000. Yesterday, their projected total number of deaths nearly doubled to just under 135,000. In fact, the Trump administration's own models from the CDC and FEMA also project the daily death rates to increase. To remind us what's at stake, I reached out to a few colleagues who are battling COVID-19 on the front lines. First, we'll hear from Dr. Jason Bay, a doctor who spent 10 days in Queens at the peak of COVID-19. And then we'll hear from Zenny Cortez, co-president of the National Nurses United and a nurse on the front lines. So Dr. Jason Bay is an internal medicine physician, is also a good friend of mine, and he has been somebody who has uh, really answered the call. Uh, he spent 10 days in Queens volunteering his, his medical skills out there in the peak of the crisis. Jason, thank you so much for taking the time. I really, really appreciate uh, you and, and, and your voice right now. Thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. So let's jump right in. Um, you know, we're hearing that things are starting to plateau and, and maybe even decline. How does it feel? Uh, on the ground right now? Does it feel like uh, like we are starting to plateau? And, and what does that mean for you? Um, one of the reasons why I went to New York was that, you know, this is a big pandemic happening across the country and on the, across the world. You know, and when the plateauing or the declining of the um, the cases was evident even in those 10 days that I was there. So when I, the first day I walked into the emergency room, um, there's really nothing like it. You walk in there and then literally my first thought was like, what did I get myself into? There are stretchers next to stretchers. Um, the rooms are basically 
filled with patients who are on breathing uh, support or some in, in some cases breathing machines. And it's hard to walk around and it's hard to even get to the, the patient that you are you know, assigned to take care of because stretchers are re- you know, double parked and they're just right next to each other. So you just cannot squeeze in between them. Right. And then by the time that I left, the emergency room was half full. There are stretcher, empty stretchers. You can walk around. Um, you know, as one of my colleagues described, it was actually civil. Um, whereas a week or two before that, it was it was described as a humanitarian disaster. Was you know the the only word that my colleague said he could describe the situation. So, you know, we are we're definitely seeing the the plateauing. At least you know when I was there for the ten days. Um, the decline in in terms of the the number of hospitalizations that are happening or ER visits, um, so yeah, that's that's definitely happening. Yeah, um, take us through a day in uh, in Queens versus a day in the Bay Area where where you're from. Uh, what was the difference like? You know, in in Queens, when I walked into a hospital, literally every single patient, um, maybe except for one, on my on my on my list of patients to take care of had COVID-19. I was taking care of, you know, 10 to 15 patients, right? So 20 to 30% of your patients, you're, you're basically moving to ICU, you know, one to two patients would die a day. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's a lot. (laughs) Yeah. Um, how has this changed the view of what you do, your work in medicine? I think something that I realized is that, um, especially with this pandemic, you know, there are a lot of choices that there are being made um, that affects patients' lives directly, right? And I think we already, I mean, I knew that in theory, but I think, you know, this pandemic really has brought that to to light so much for me because, you know, I, I'm in New York seeing these patients and, and, you know, like holding hands of a patient who is dying as her brother is crying over the phone saying, I can't, I'm sorry, I can't be there. And understanding this is a kind of a, you know, this was a, a medical issue that caused this as much, but there was as much of a political issue that drove this, right? Because this is not happening as much in places like South Korea um, or, or Taiwan or, or Japan. And what I saw in the field was that a lot of the conversations that were happening were not maybe relevant to what's happening on the on the on the ground or or what's happening on the ground is not being reflected. So um, it really made me think of, of my role as a doctor and, and healthcare professional that maybe it's you know our our role, you know, it, it's maybe beyond just taking care of patients who's in front of us, right? It's it's also really to advocate for for changes that are needed uh, for um, to bring to attention those things that that need to be brought to attention um, that are not being addressed, and there are so many of those <laughs> that's happening currently. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what in particular, in, in your mind, does really needs to change? Um, I think people talk about testing a lot, um, and I think I think that's certainly true. Um, and I think it's it's more than just a test testing capacity. I think that's really important. But I think what I'm also um, seeing on the ground is that like when I, I, when I first started, the tests um, used to take a long time. So it takes five days, it would take seven days, sometimes it would take two weeks 
for this test to come back, um, which is not very helpful, right? And even in Queens, I sent a test and um, on a patient who's hospitalized and that test result came back positive for COVID five days after she passed away. So, you know, it's, it's not only the testing capacity issue, but like how, how quickly those tests, you know, come back to be helpful, right? What do you, uh, what do you have to say to these folks who are out protesting uh, these stay-at-home orders and, um, you know, potentially putting themselves and others at risk? Um, you've seen the inside of a hospital in Queens. You've worked there. You've held hands with people who are dying of COVID-19. What do you have to say to them? I, I definitely empathize with with people. I I've been in quarantine for a very long time. I mean, partly because I um I had to get tested a couple times for for uh, potential exposures. Um, so I know what it feels like to be holed up in a room or a house and not having contacts. Um, I you know, and I I know there's a lot of worries about you know economy and un- unemployment, and I think that's very very unfortunate. Um. I think we have to distinguish hope and wishes of what we want the world to look like and and what is the reality that's in front of us. And, and I think the reality is that, you know, there are still, I think, 300 million or more people in the U.S. who probably were never exposed to it. And if we just go back to things as usual, reopen businesses and do exactly the same things that we were doing, which is not contact race, not, you know, um, test widely, then we're just going to be in the same place. It's not, it's, you know, it's not a question of if, it's just when. So it could be in two months, it could be in four months, it could be in six months. So, so I, I want our conversations to change from when we can op- reopen because that is important, but I think what's more important is how we can open re- safely. Because my concern is that that in three to six months we will we'll be in the exactly same place where we're all the schools are shut down again, all the restaurants are shut down again, and if that happens for the second time, the economy. I am very worried that that the economy will just be in a much worse shape than than it is now, um, while having costed you know, hundreds of, of thousands of lives. Um, but we don't have to um, make that into our future, right? Like if we invest in testing, if we invest in contact tracing, you know, like states like California, Massachusetts, we can avoid that from happening and, and, and let the economy recover and don't have to shut the restaurants down and, and you know, stores down again. So um, I know I know everyone's frustrated and, 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 and angry and, and really want to, you know, go back to normal. Um, me too. <laughs> I really do too. Um, I think we just have to be honest with ourselves about what's, you know, like where that's going to land us if we if we do exactly the same thing as as January and February. Um, really, really grateful uh, to be able to um, to talk with you today and learn from you today. And uh, we wish you continued good health and uh, and safety. And all my best to. Uh, your friends and family, okay? Thank you.
All right. So my guest is Zenny Cortez. She is a nurse and uh, also co-president of the National Nurses United. Uh, really grateful to you for your time and your leadership uh, in this moment. Can you tell us what is it like to be on the front lines uh, for you and your members right now? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. And I continue to thank uh, folks like you who continue to shed light on what's going on. So in the front lines, um, nurses are going into work uh, with lots of anxiety and a lot of fear. It's because every day we do not know how our patients will be like, you know, during the shift. And also the constant fear of not having the optimum protective equipment as we um, take care of our patients every day. So that's in our minds all the time. But we are overcome with our compassion and our willingness to take care of the patients. Well, we really appreciate uh, you doing that and um, you truly are lifesavers. I want to ask, um, you, know, you talked about a couple of challenges there. You said uh, there's a challenge with, you know, A, the condition of the patients that you're seeing on the front lines, and B, that, you know, a lot of nurses and, and staff in hospitals are, are trying to care for patients without the necessary personal protective equipment. Um, can you speak to the the, the, the latter, the, the PPE challenge? I mean, we've heard a lot about that in the news and it's sort of faded as a story. But from what I'm hearing from you and, and others is that this is still an issue. How, how are people coping and what needs to be done? Okay, so what's happening right now is, um, like you said, there's a whole lot of news that have come out from you know, the White House, the, the governors saying that so many millions have been released to the front lines, but it has not reached us, okay? So every day we come to work not knowing whether we will have the protective gear, the optimum protective gear, like the N95 masks, which is required when you take care of COVID-positive patients. And also we say that patients who are PUI, you know, when the tests are still pending, we should be treating them like they're positive because we never know how the test is going to fare out. So every day that's a challenge because if we are assigned to um, PUI patients, then our employer is telling us that we don't need an N95 mask. But we continue to fight for that. And so we have a little bit of a win when they said that, yeah, you can have N95 masks to take care of those patients. But now a new challenge is arising because they want us to recycle those N95 masks, which is not good because there are no proven tests or data that says once you recycled an N95 mask, it will give you the optimum protection. So just to clarify something. So um, earlier on, there were patients who would come in, they had COVID-19 symptoms, they were pending a test, and the directive from employers were that you didn't need to wear a mask with these patients, even though we knew that they could potentially be uh, sick with the virus and shedding the virus and making other people sick. Right. They would give us a, a, a surgical mask, which is not the same protection as you would get from an N95 mask, because they said the patient's not a confirmed positive. But again, like I said, until after we have re, 
receive the test results, then everybody should be treated like as if they're positive. Yeah. And and now, you know, we've got uh, nurses having to recycle uh, their N95s. You know, how long how long does that last for? I mean, how long are they being asked to wear the same N95 mask? Well, right now we are being told that we could use that mask for more than our shifts. There are nurses who have been using them for a week and then only to be told that they should not toss it. It needs to be recycled. And again, like, you know, there are no proven data that says the efficiency and the protection that we will get from recycled masks are the same as if they were new. Yeah. A lot of folks haven't ever, um, you know, interacted with an N95 and they don't appreciate it that it's kind of porous. And, you know, if you're in a clinical scenario where you're running around and you might be sweating it in, and of course there's droplets coming in from your own mouth and, uh, you know, and these things just like anything wear, and there's no evidence to suggest that they last beyond one use because, of course, in normal circumstances, the only time anybody's using an N95 is when you're, you know, in most circumstances, you have a patient with, with tuberculosis, right, which is exceedingly rare. In my training, the only time I've ever worn an N95 was with a patient with tuberculosis. Most of the time, you know, even even contact precautions, you're not you're not wearing an N95. And so, and you use it once and then you, you, you know, you pitch it. And now we're being, uh, we're asking folks to, to use these for potentially weeks. And and also even the companies that manufacture the masks does not recommend decontamination and recycling. And and so our our employers are being reckless about recycling them and decontaminating them with hydrogen peroxide and then only for the frontline workers and nurses like us who will be inhaling that hydrogen peroxide when we are being told to use recycled masks? Wow. Um, the the other the other challenge that uh, you know that, that that comes through here is is you, know, you talked about the condition of the patients, but also you know nurses and, and and frontline workers are going into work under circumstances where you don't have the support system that you usually have. Uh, you know, you think about uh, providing childcare for nurses and, and and making sure that you know things are taken care of on the home front. How has that affected both you know the ability of nurses to to come and, and be fully invested in in the work, and then also how has it affected you know their their home life balance and their ability to make sure that that folks are still taken care of uh, at home? Well, um, it's it's really a challenge for the nurse and. The good thing about nurses is we are able to put behind the back burner, if you will, when we come to work. Because when we come to work, our focus is different. Uh, we focus on our patients because that's what we do. And also for a lot of our nurses, you know, spouses and partners are furloughed so that childcare is there, you know. Uh, is available. But again, you know, the constant um, worry about um, what am I bringing home to my family if I'm not well protected at work? So that's another challenge that we are faced with every day. I, I, I can't imagine that anxiety. Um, one of the things that we're seeing is that our healthcare system is just absolutely crumbling. Uh, 
through this pandemic. I mean, we've got heroes, uh, people like you and, and, and nurses all over the country and uh, doctors and hospital staff. But the institutions themselves are being waylaid by this because of, you know, uh, the, the the fact that the main income stream that uh, hospitals rely on are the elective surgeries that they've had to cancel because of COVID-19 and are struggling under the need to be able to provide more supplies in inadequate supply chains. Um, what, why, in your mind, is our healthcare system just so flat-footed to this challenge and what needs to be done to address it? I'm, I'm really appalled about our healthcare system because um, it's true that a lot of the institutions rely on elective uh, surgeries to bring them the revenue. But in a lot of cases, our institutions are uh, supported by prepaid insurance, okay? So whether patients use their so-called healthcare, they pay into the insurance, they pay their monthly premiums. Um, what we need is really a true healthcare system wherein the patient can have an easy access to healthcare and an early access to healthcare so that when they need care, it's there. The way we have it set up right now is if they need to go in to seek medical care, they have to call and they have to be approved. But if our patients have that easy access and early access, then a lot of diseases and you know a lot of conditions could have been prevented early on. So I would think that... Um, I understand that hospitals and institutions should be making money. It's their business, but it should not be on the backs of our patients because our patients deserve healthcare and it's a human right. Everybody deserves healthcare, true and genuine healthcare. And, and again, you know, if we only had um, a Medicare for all system that would allow everyone to have access to healthcare, then a lot of the early deaths that was the cause of this pandemic could have been prevented because if they were feeling ill, they could have gone to the emergency room. But what stopped them from doing that is the high um, uh, ER visit that they have to pay. You know, So that's, that's a barrier for a lot of our patients to, to seek medical help early on. It's, it's really appalling that America, the, one of the richest countries, in fact, the richest country in the world, cannot provide health care you know, for our patients and for everybody. Um, I want to ask you, you know, how can people help right now? What are the things that, um, as a nurse on the front lines, you want people to know about what they can do to help? Right now, we have an ongoing online petition, which is... Um, uh, nurse, protectnurses.org, and it has over about a quarter million signatures. And we urge um, people listening to please sign on to it because it contains three petitions. First, it um, a petition to the American Hospital Association so that when nurses speak out about the lack of PPE or infractions about infection control in their facilities, 
there should be no retaliation from the hospital industry. And then the second one is um, a petition to Congress that they should sign or um, release an emergency protection for those of us nurses and the frontline workers that there should be protection for us. And the third petition that's part of it is for the president to to fully invoke the um, uh, the DPA, which is the Defense Protection Production Act, that would require all local manufacturers to start making all the protective personal protective equipment that we need, such as masks, gowns, gloves, and even bunny suits that would protect us and in order for us to safely take care of our patients. It was done, I think it was invoked during World War II, and it should be done now. I mean, this is like a war that we do not know who our enemy is, you know? And, and so it should be done because we've had so many deaths, so many senseless deaths that have been happening, and that's not acceptable. Um, Zenny, we really, really appreciate you, your time, your perspective, and uh, we're grateful and, and, and uh, listeners who uh, want to support um, our nurses on the front lines uh, should go to protectnurses.org. Uh, make sure you sign the petition uh, and get behind uh, our nurses who are um, you know, so important on the front lines because they're the ones who get behind us when, when we get sick. So Zenny, thank you so much for your time. Um, I really, really appreciate it. It was a privilege uh, speaking with you today. Thank you for having me. What both Jason and Zenny remind us is that we are nowhere near done with COVID-19. As hard as this is, as nice as the weather is, and as much as we wish it weren't the case. But I want to end today on a positive note. Graduates all over the country celebrated their achievements this past weekend. It was bittersweet, as they had to forego the usual pomp and circumstance of graduation. But they are a reminder that there's a future after this. But we have to build it. Here's America's dad, Tom Hanks, in a virtual commencement speech. Sometime, if we all remain good Americans, you will continue on into the after. As in, that was after the virus was tamed. You'll have made it through the time of great sacrifice and great need, and no one will be more fresh to the task of restarting our measure of normalcy than you, you chosen ones. Now, the future is always uncertain, but we who celebrate what you have done, who celebrate all of your achievements, we are certain of one thing on this day. You will not let us down. If you'd like to support organizations leading the fight to support our most vulnerable during this pandemic, donate to Crooked Media's Coronavirus Relief Fund at crooked.com coronavirus. We'll see you on Friday with another update. America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. Stephen Hoffman is our senior producer. Charlotte Landis mixes and masters the show. Production support from Tara Terpstra and Sydney Rapp. The theme song is by Takayasuzawa and Alex Sugiera. Our executive producer is Sarah Geismer. And I'm your host, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. Thanks for listening.